Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to the device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Over the years on Fourth Estate, we've spoken to hundreds of journalists, but one category of journalists has eluded us until now, the music journalist. Stuart Coop has been a major name in the music industry for decades and one of the country's most well-known music journos. He's written for countless publications, but also gone on to manage bands, be a music promoter, publicist, and even run his own label. His life has cut across just about every part of the music industry, and his new book is a look at his life and his experiences. The book is called Shake Some Action, and we are fortunate to have him here on the program. Stuart Coop, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you, Anthony. Okay, Stuart, look, the book, it's a rollicking read, and it's impossible to go through all of it, but we'll give it a go. But first, before we jump into the book, why did you write this book? And and tell us why you chose the title, Shake Some Action. Uh, well, I wrote the book because it was uh, the suggestion of my publisher. Uh, the short version of the story is, is I went to see him with what I thought were a half a dozen really no-brainer, great ideas for books. Uh, and as I went through, one was a history of community radio in Australia, believe it or not, and one was about airline pilots, a kitchen confidentials type book, a look at pilots. And he was sort of, you know, his eyes were glazing and he was going, oh, not a bad idea, not a bad idea, but no, I can't really see it getting up here at Penguin Random House. And then uh, at the end he said, have you ever thought of writing a memoir? And I said, no. And he said, well, I think you should. Uh, and I went, okay, fine, and didn't really think anything more about it. Uh, I didn't think, you know, necessarily it was that interesting. And he kept coming back to me every couple of months, and he'd say, you know, have you thought about this memoir idea? And I'd shoot back an email going, no. And uh, eventually he said, look, why don't you map it out? And I did that. I did sort of a, a, a very basic two-page outline. And then he said, uh, you know, could you write two sample chapters? So I, I sent in two. One was about interviewing Bob Dylan and the other one was about Friday on My Mind and that being the first record I bought and the impact that had on me. Uh, so it went through the publisher's meeting and got a, a thumbs up and then came the one where most books get shot down, which is sales and marketing. And he, uh, my publisher called me up and he said, you're not going to believe this. I'm really happy, but it got through sales. So, so then I had to write it. Uh, and I enjoyed uh, writing it. I didn't have to interview anyone. Um, you know, I just sat and, and did it, you know, every day. And there was a second part to that question, wasn't there? Oh, the title, Shake Some Action. Shake Some Action. It was originally going to be called Let's All Turn On. Uh, a nod to the Hoodoo Gurus and Stone Age Romeo's album when I was their manager. And uh, and Justin came to me at one point and he said, I, I've gone off. See, everything here is not my idea, right? He said, uh, you know, uh, he said, I've, I've, I'm not so sure about Let's All Turn On. He said, this book feels like Shake Some Action. And I love the Flaming Groovies song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the Flaming Groovies. The Flaming Groovies are in the book because I worked with them when they came to Australia the one time in, in the mid-1980s. So uh, in the absence of a better idea, Anthony, I went, that sounds good. Let's call it Shake Some Action. So now I'm completely wedded to it. Uh, and except for this conversation, I'm going to claim that it was my idea all along. Uh, um, but no, it, it kind of, it fits as well as any book title does, I think. 
I hope so. Uh, it definitely does. I mean, the Beatles seem like a really stupid idea for a band, but now we just accept it's the Beatles. Yes. Yes. And look, this is what, your 13th book? It is my 13th book. Look, your recent books, you've written some um, some high-profile books on like Michael Kitinsky and Paul Kelly. How did it feel you being the subject? Because you're a journalist. Um, you wouldn't normally be writing about yourself. Did, did Was that an easy transition to make? Well, I mean, I guess what was going through my head every day when I was working on it, is this really interesting to anybody else? You know, what what can I take out of my life experience that and, and others will be the judge when the book comes out that that makes it bigger than just you know I did this I did that I did this you know um, you know I I knew that I'd done a lot of stuff um, but I but it was just like what's the bigger picture here uh, and and at one point my publisher said to me something interesting you know because I I was talking about you know, what we call the big ticket items, you know, hanging out in Mick Jagger's hotel room, interviewing Dylan, you know, conversations with Lou Reed, all that stuff. And he sort of politely made the point that every music journalist has got war stories. And he said two things that we really want to hone in on or you to hone in whilst you're writing this book is growing up in a small town, Launceston, and dreaming of doing all the stuff that you ended up uh, doing um, and also he he said that it's the the juggling aspect that mm. separates he said me from most other journalists because he said look you know you've been a concert promoter you've done 20 years of radio you've run record labels you've done you know managed the Huda gurus and Paul Kelly you've done all these things and frequently simultaneously and he said that's what's interesting as well so and look I in, I enjoyed it with that coda that I was going you know is this really that interesting uh, and so you know I, I I wrote it initially comparatively quickly for me, partly because I, you know, when you've done as many books as I have, I love not having to interview anybody. <laughs> I loved not having to transcribe, you know, because I do my own transcriptions, you know, and, and when you've interviewed, as I did for my roadies book, 80 roadies, and you've got to transcribe every word of their conversation. Um, so it was a different, a different process, but, you know, I, I wrote every day for an extended period. You know, I get up early, I start when I'm working on a book about six o'clock in the morning uh, and I, I write until my brain starts to be more sludge-like than usual, which is usually, you know, four or five hours of, of good writing. And, and I aimed every day to, to get, my goal was three to 4,000 words. Uh, no, no reading it back, no spell checking, no punctuation, I've always said I'm on a lifelong mission to keep sub-editors and editors employed, <laughs> and so I do my best to, to maintain that. Uh, but, you know, look, I, 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 had, I had fun with it. I kept thinking, have I got this right? Uh, and my publisher said, you know, memoir, it's your memory. And, uh, you know, I, I know that a, a good friend of mine, Roger Grierson, has just published uh, – his memoir, and Roger and I lived together in, in Cathedral Street in Woolloomooloo. We ran a record label together. Our books have completely different recollections of 
how we decided to start a record label together. There is no common ground in his recollection and my rec- recollection. It's not interesting. Of course, mine's right, but that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's beside the point. Well, look, let's go back to that beginning. You mentioned it already. You, you grew up in Launceston. In the year 2023, Launceston's only about 87,000 people. So in the 1960s when you were a boy, what was it like? It was a, a quiet um, – well, you know, I didn't realise how quiet it was because I didn't know anything else. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it was kind of like the big smoke for me until I realised there was bigger smokes, you know, like in Adelaide and then uh, and then Sydney. Uh, but, you know, I had a very, very – Typical, I think, upbringing. You know, just all, all the usual things that that kids my age did. But I, I was really, I really gravitated to to music, and and you know, I write about having a crystal radio, which yes. is this contraption you would attach to the telephone, and you'd be able to pick up interstate radio stations, and and I listened. You know, pretty obsessively, particularly to 70X, which was the more, you know, adventurous Launceston radio station. And, you know, I started buying records at a fairly early age. And and I, I can't really pinpoint why I wanted to write about music except for the fact that I was really taken by Rob Smythe, who I devote a whole chapter to in the book, uh, who wrote for Nation Review. And and I love the way he conveyed his enthusiasm and love for music and very, very varied styles of music and and artists. And at the time, I think I was going, oh, I wonder if I could get a job, you know, writing about music at the Launceston Examiner, you know, and and my target was Chris Kopas, who was the music writer uh, at the Launceston Examiner. And I was going, I want to be him. I want to be him. But, uh, you know, I just, yes, just immersed myself you know, hours, hundreds of hours, just sitting in front of my my parents' radiogram, stereogram, you know, listening to, you know, I guess a lot of the records that people listened to then, you know, Neil Young's Harvest, um, you know, the first couple of Leonard Cohen records, mm. you know, Bob Dylan records, Tom Paxton records. You know, I still have most of them. Um, but look, your parents, you know, they had a radiogram, but they weren't playing the Beatles or the Stones. Mm. Um, what was there a, a pivotal moment when a, a, a song just stopped you in your tracks? No, oh, Friday on my mind by the Easy Beats. Right. You know, it was the first um, record I bought, first time I'd saved up enough money to buy a 7-inch 45. Uh, you know, I I didn't, you know, Monday I've got Friday on my mind. I didn't quite understand what that was. You know, I was a long way off working, you know, working for the rich man, blah, blah, blah. But it mm. struck something in me. Uh, you know, it was in- incredibly memorable. It had a wonderful dynamic, and it was just like my song. I mean, it still thrills me to this day every every time I hear it, and I must have heard it, you know, thousands uh, of times. Uh, and and it was only when I actually achieved one of my dreams, you know, and when mm. I will get to maybe talking about when I was in Paris talking to Bruce Springsteen when we started talking about Friday on my mind that I realized it wasn't quite as simple a song as what I thought. I thought it was a pretty straightforward, you know, easy pop song. Uh, and Bruce Springsteen explained to me that it wasn't it was a lot more than that. Um but that that was that was really the the song for me and uh, you know, from then on, I just, you know, I kept buying records when I could. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd constantly listen to the radio. You know, I'd, I'd read everything I could about 
music. I'd, you know, my friends, I'd hang out with like the Gregson brothers who were really into Cream and Hendrix and all of that British mm. blues stuff. And then we had an American teacher, Buck Emberg, and his kids were really into Grand Funk Railroad. And, uh, you know, so I listened a lot to Grand Funk Railroad. And so, no, it was just, I tried a little bit of writing. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, my my early writing read like a 15 and 16 year old kid trying to write about music and I, and I was a shameless plagiarism is the word they use now you know I I was you know one step removed inspiration eh? inspiration yeah, well inspiration's a nice way of putting it <laughs> but you know the early stuff that I wrote was pretty much me trying to be Rob Smythe in particular well uh, let's 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 dive into that so you finished school and you went to university. Now, you know, uh, you had to move cities and you moved to Adelaide. Um, it's during this time that, you know, you've, you've gone from being passionate about music to writing about music. Take us through that transition. Yeah, I, I went to Flinders University in Adelaide simply because, you know, I kind of had this inkling that I needed to move from Launceston and you know, Hobart was south. You know, I needed to go north somewhere. And uh, Flinders University at the time had a reputation as being Australia's most radical university. And something in the in the little Stuart brain when I was reading the handbook about Flinders went, that's my people. I'm going there. <laughs> uh, and so I went to Flinders and look, I became one of the, you know, in those days everything was done as a collective. So I became one of the collective that edited Empire Times, which was Flinders University student magazine, had been edited by people like Martin Armiger and Martin Fabini before me. And uh, and so I started writing for for Empire Times and then had the idea of starting a, a fanzine because everybody else was doing fanzines. And, um, and so I did, uh, with my friend Donald Robertson, we did one issue of Street Fever. And then we decided to get just a little bit more serious about it. And, and we looked at the prevailing Australian music magazines at the time, particularly Ram coming out of Sydney and Duke coming out of Melbourne. And we thought, hmm, we can do that. And inspired by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers' song, A Roadrunner, we started Roadrunner. And, uh, you know, it, was, it gave me the opportunity to write. It gave me the opportunity to to develop what skills I had at the time. Uh, and th at the s around that time, I, I mean, we used to send Ro I used to send Roadrunner to Anthony O'Grady, who was the, the editor of Ram magazine, you know, and with the, with the slight arrogance of youth, you know, here we come, you know, we, I think we viewed Ram as being, you know, established and stayed and we were the brash young kids on the block. And I'm sure, you know, Anthony just rolled his eyes and went, oh, here he comes again. Uh, but eventually... I ended up being a freelance writer for, for Ram magazine, doing Adelaide reviews of, of live music that, you know, I was the Adelaide ligger, which was the expression for music reviewer. Uh, and then eventually one day my phone rang and, uh, and it was Anthony O'Grady and he said, Dear boy, uh, how would you like to come to Sydney and work for a real Barb Intended? A real music <laughs> magazine, and uh, was offering me a job with with Ram, and so I thought about that for seven and a quarter seconds, and was booking a ticket to Sydney. I said, "What about my possessions and everything?" He said, "Don't worry, 
Uh, he called the angels and their road crew came round a couple of days later. Everything was bundled into the back of their truck with their PA and via a circuitous because they were on tour, eventually would end up in Sydney. And uh, and I came to Sydney and, and became a staff writer for, for Ram magazine, literally for the first month sleeping under my desk because you talk about big smoke, you know, like Launceston was one thing, Adelaide was another thing, but Sydney just bamboozled me. I had no idea where anything was, what you did. I didn't have friends. I didn't know anything, you know. And, and it's a notoriously hard city to crack, isn't it? I I thought so. You know, look, I, you know, I met people quickly through RAM uh, and by going out to see bands. But, but I can still remember, you know, uh, RAM's office was on Glee Point Road. And I can still remember having absolutely no orientation. And, and the one night I remember, which I write a little bit about in the book, I was desperately lonely and, and I managed to find my way down to near where we're sitting at the moment to a pizza bar on Broadway. Now, the, the actual journey was about a 10-minute walk, but I felt like, you know, am I going to be able to find my way back? Where have I got to, you know, like no mobile phones, no nothing, you know, and I'd, I'd made this journey to a pizza bar somewhere, you know, in Chippendale Broadway area. Uh, and I, you know, I'd, I'd left the safety of Glebe Point Road for this this big mission. Um, so you know, it was yeah. But I and, I and I literally didn't have anywhere to live. So I, I was the gold star Ram contributor because, of course, you know, I was the last person to leave and the first person there in the morning because I'd slept underneath my desk. And uh, so thankfully, we had a shower in the in the offices in uh, in Glebe Point Road. Um, but yeah, and that's that's where I really I Anthony O'Grady sadly is no longer with us. But you know, Anthony O'Grady taught me how to write um, in a way that I'd not had people to to guide me and teach me before. I'd read obsessively and you know and immersed myself in 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 all sorts of writing, but you know particularly writing about music. But Anthony was the first person, and I couldn't stand it at the time. I mean, he and I locked horns very, very early on and repeatedly. Uh, but it was only in hindsight I grew to realise what he'd done. You know, he would, you know, he would take my copy, and there would be ten thousand red lines all over it, and all that sort of stuff. But instead of doing it himself, he'd go right. You go back and sit there, and you do it. And that was invaluable. So it was a masterclass. An absolute masterclass. You know, Anthony was a very, very, very fine writer about music. Uh, and he, you know, gave me the time. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be writing this book if it wasn't for Anthony O'Grady. And, and him taking that time and going, you know, I can do it for you, but the only way you're going to get better, the only way you're going to learn is by doing it yourself. And that way you'll learn stuff about sentence structure and how you talk about music and what you don't say, how you say it. And, um, you know, it was it was an incredible grounding. And, and the other way that I, I, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, you keep on getting better at what you do is I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And mm. as equally as important, I read and I read and I read. And, uh, you know, I've always been, you know, an incredible reader of, of magazines and, and books. And, and you know, I, and I, I studied, you know, how other people 
expressed their enthusiasm and love for music because that's all that's always driven me. It's about sharing. You know, from that time in Launceston when I was so enraptured by Friday on My Mind, you know, and I wanted to tell everyone who didn't already know how great Friday on My Mind was that it was possibly the greatest two and a half minutes of music ever in history. Uh, and so everything after that was about enthusiasm and, and, and sharing. Who were the music journalists who were inspiring you? Uh, Nick Kent at New Musical Express, um, uh, Lester Bangs, uh, uh, Dave Marsh, uh, Robert Christgau, uh, Charles Shah Murray, um, a little bit later, but not much later, Tony Parsons and Julie Birchall at NME. You know, basically the things that were available in Australia easily from overseas, uh, you know, whether New, New, New Musical Express, Sounds, Melody Maker, um, you know, Rolling Stone. So they're, they're the, the people... I I read uh, Rob Smythe, as I mentioned before, who wrote for Nation Review. You know, was a huge influence on me, um, and you know some of the other Australian writers about music. But principally, I was looking to the 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 NME school of of music writers and and the really um, top notch. Um, American writers. You know, it was only later that I realised, you know, there were also some incredible women writing about music, you know, like Ellen Willis and Lisa Robinson uh, and so forth. But at the time, you know, it was, it was many blokes um, and, and, you know, and I read them and read them and, and read them. What year was it that you started at RAM? I came up to Sydney in August of 1978. Uh, and I would be remiss, of course, to mention that that Ram had two very, very fine um, women journalists, Annie Burton and and Jenny Hunter Brown or Jenny Brown, you know, writing for them as well. And so, you know, I I learned a lot from them. So, look, it's nineteen seventy eight. You're in Sydney. And you're writing for Ram. Um, there was a real explosion in music going, uh, uh, music happening at that time, but also in Australian music and an interest, in, uh, a deep burning interest in Australian music. Did you feel like you were riding a wave? Oh, look, I, I have no doubt that that I, you know, along with, you know, Richard Gilliatt, you know, Clinton Walker, Andrew McMillan, Annie Burton, and, you know, and Chrissy Eliza and a whole bunch of other people that were writing in that country at the time, you know, we were uh, at absolutely the right place at the right time for lots of reasons. Partly, as you said, Anthony, uh, an explosion of, of great music. You know, we just had the first musical revolution that I was old enough to be part of. Mm. You know, I was born uh, like Elvis and rock and roll in 1956. I was only eight when Beatlemania hit. Punk rock was my thing. You know, right. that was my musical revolution and that shaped a lot of, of my aesthetic and, and what I listened to at the time. Um, and we were at the right time in terms of music media. Uh, we, we were, you know, if we wanted to write a 2,000-word review of the second Paul Kelly record, I did that, by the way, um, <laughs> then we could, we could do that. Uh, and we were we were a generation that was riding on the new journalism. Yep. Uh, some of us got it wrong. We were not the star of the show. Uh, but the ones of us that got it right, we realized that we had license to be part of the story. So, you know, of course, you know, everyone that I knew that wrote about music in this country had a copy of 
the new journalism on their bookshelf. And we, you know, we read Truman Capote and we read Tom Wolfe and we read Terry Southern and we read all of those those mm. those writers who were considered at the vanguard of, of new journalism. So, you know, in the process of that, you know, we became, for better or worse, you know, well-known mm. for our opinions you know and, and i like that because you know people would people would come to what i wrote and and they'd go oh stuart coop here he comes again he loves power pop and he loves television oh god you know they, they had a frame of reference yep. they knew who we were and they knew our voices and maybe they would go oh i love stuart coop's taste you know and he just told me that i need to get the new album by um television or Pierre Ubu or whatever, or other people would go, oh, God, Stuart Coop, I hate his taste. And he, he loves Pierre Ubu. I'm never going to listen to Pierre Ubu ever. You know, um, and, yep. But, you know, we, we, Nick Kent put it quite perfectly not so long ago when he said that he was, you know, right place, right time, wrong drugs in his <laughs> case. Um, and uh, it, it was a terrific time because there was lots to write about. Um, you know, we had access to to all of these performers. The the record labels and the PR industry hadn't taken over to the way that they have now. You know, we 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 were we'll, allowed. We'll, we'll to- get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that because yeah. that that is definitely something I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. But but from this time when you're working at Ram, you you soon moved up in the in the industry. Um, you you had your own column in the Sun Herald. Yeah, I again, look, I was lucky. You know, and I I've, I've never thought otherwise. You know, I I had a had a falling out with a serious falling out with Anthony at Ram over um over a Red Gum review. And uh the the first Red Gum album. You know, if you're going to fall out with someone, make it over something other than Red Gum's first album, but you know, that's what happened. Uh I thought it was a masterpiece that deserved another 2000 word review. Uh Anthony thought it was a good album but deserved maybe 75 to 100 uh words. Uh and so I basically resigned and uh yeah, I remember the day he rolled me two joints, handed them to me, and he said, good luck, dear boy. And um, uh, as fate would have it, David Dale, who be- you know became very well known as you know a food writer and television critic, uh, you know an author in his own right, David had stepped in at RAM to edit a couple of issues whilst Anthony was overseas. And uh, at that time, the Sun-Herald was trying to youthify its readership. Uh, and they also had the guy, a lovely guy, uh, motoring writer, wrote the music column. And David suggested to the hierarchy of the Sun Herald that maybe it would be a good idea to let the motoring writer write about cars because <laughs> he was really good at it and maybe get someone who knew about music to write about music. And he explained, as he told me many years later to Max Such, the then editor of the Sun Herald, that I had no idea about grammar and no idea about punctuation, but they could be fixed. But what I did have uh, was a great love and, you know, increasing knowledge of, of popular music. So suddenly I went to what was the biggest selling newspaper in Australia at the time. And as you said, yes, a little little photo of me in the, in the corner. The column was called Rock Beat. And, and again, I was lucky because no one told me what to do as long as I turned in a column. So if I wanted to write a column on tactics or any of these independent Australian 
bands who I happen to love and give them a half a page, you know, on the M Squared record label or anything that took my fancy in the biggest selling newspaper in the country. You know, no one was going, oh, Stuart, we can't possibly write about the Laughing Clowns because there's a new Rod Stewart album. You know, that that's, conversation never happened. That's incredible freedom. Oh, it was it – was, Unbelievable. You know, I could go down to the Surrey Hills, uh, to, to the hotel in Surrey Hills. I could go to the Excelsior or the Southern Cross and see some band on a Tuesday night and go, God, they're really good. And do arrange to do a quick interview with them and, and write a column about them. And no one ever said anything. As long as my copy was in on time. Um, everything was fine and Jim Dandy. And, and of course, you know, I was just going, you know, every month I'd go, <laughs> we're still getting away with this, you know, and then months became years and, you know, it was, it was like close to, you know, roughly 10 years that I, that I did that column whilst also doing, that's when I really moved into serious freelance writing and, and basically would write for, you know anyone that would uh, you know that would pay you know a pittance and you know and a little later of course you know I I started one of my outlets was was Dolly magazine which is another story possibly maybe for today I was, but, I was <laughs> wanting to ask you about Dolly yeah cool what kind of things did you write there Oh, uh, look again you know lots of stuff about independent Australian bands um, uh, but I I I in, ended up having a, a reputation. I mean, there, there is a generation that of now women who are in their, you know, late 40s, 50s, early 60s, you know, who I can do anything else in my life, but I will just be that, as far as they're concerned, I'm that guy from Dolly, you know, because they were, at the time, you one has to remember that Dolly in the 80s, there was no other that was it. There was no internet. There was no... No. And, and the biggest decision that came for a, a young Australian woman was when they had to decide whether they were Cleo or Cosmopolitan. Hmm. And that was a big deal, right? Were you a Cleo reader or Cosmo reader? But up to that point, there was only Dolly. And Dolly had, you know, when I finished writing at Dolly, it was selling about 283,000 magazines a month and with a pass-on factor of one to five. That's a crazy huge number. Huge number. And I was the guy who had access to every artist that the Dolly Reader held near and dear. And I would tell them every month that they were wasting their time listening to Duran Duran, who I nicknamed Yawn Yawn. Again, you can say to, you know, you can, if you say the words Yawn Yawn to a, a whole gamut of people, they'll go, Stuart Kerr slagging off. Duran Duran again in Dolly, uh, and and I would I would get away with being doing the record reviews pages, which I did for for many years, and where I would pick the latest big name records, and I would give them minus maybe minus a hundred stars or minus you know whatever number of minuses I felt like giving them, and then I would extol the virtues of the new Johnny's record, the new Go-Between's record, uh, Steve Earle, um, Nick Cave's new record, basically anything that I did think that uh, the Dolly readers should be so embracing. You and were, to the Dolly readers, you were really like their cool uncle. I was, and I didn't realise how what a cool uncle I was until actually it was, it was the advent of social media and, and I was on Facebook and, and suddenly I started getting a disproportionate number of friend requests from women who I didn't know. 
and and invariably I'd say yes, and they'd send me notes, and they, they were really touching, as you know, they were lovely, you know, and they would be along the lines of, you know, if it wasn't for you, I would never have listened to the Go Betweens, you know, if it wasn't for your Dolly column, you know, you persuaded me to go and buy, you know, Nick Cave records or, you know, Hoodoo Gurus records or you know whoever it was, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, they hate a lot of them hated me. You know, that was the thing. You know, I, I was I was the guy that was, um, you know, criticizing and and attacking those that they held nearest and dearest. So you know, but it was mainly music writing. But golly, Anthony, I wrote stories on Stuart Coop tells you how to kiss. There was a piece that I don't even remember writing. I had a haircut, so there was a piece about me having a haircut. Stuart Coop's Guide to Romance. Hello? <laughs> uh, I, w- I went and worked in the kitchen and doing room service at the Siebel Townhouse. I was an extra on the TV soap opera Sons and Daughters. You know, I did lots and lots of stuff. But ostensibly, it was, it was music, music writing. Okay. Well, look, you've touched on this before. Like, as a music journalist, before the labels kind of took control of, of everything, you you had real power. And, you know, labels and managers were courting music journalists. Um, you were flown around the world at various times and you got to, you know, knock knock shoulders with, with um, a whole lot of stars. There's a couple of people we should talk about. One of them is you met your hero, Bruce Springsteen. Tell, tell us about that. Uh, yes, I mean, I I was lucky enough. That was my first overseas trip, period. Um, if you don't count Launceston to Melbourne. Um, and uh, that's a Tasmanian joke, sorry. Uh, I went to Paris, yes, because it, it, it seems weird now, but uh, the record label in Australia was having trouble breaking Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, the record sales were not what they expected. And, and they said, you know, we think someone should go to Paris to we'll go overseas. It happened to be Paris, which is fine, uh, to see Bruce Springsteen play live. And I remember the head of, of CBS Records at the time saying, you know, are you available? And, you know, yeah, I was kind of available. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I went uh, and interviewed Springsteen. I saw two shows in Paris in, um, on the River Tour in 1981. And then I got to, to meet and, and talk with with Springsteen, which was like, you know, that that's how I start Shake Some Action because that was that pinch-me moment of I'm this kid from Launceston who all I wanted to do well, – I don't know whether it was all I wanted to do, but, you know, who's always wanted to write about music and now I'm sitting backstage in Paris with one of my absolute all-time music heroes – you know, I'm 20-something, I think I was 25 years of age. I'm going, how did this happen? And at the end of the interview, we, we, you know, I asked Springsteen about Australian music and, and, uh, and we got talking about Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats. And he said, that song, that song, you know, I, I love that song. He said, I've always wanted to play it, but I can't get the guitar chords right. And me, who actually knows nothing about the technique of playing music at all, went, can't be that hard you know it's a pop song you know like you're one of the greatest guitar players i've ever seen you know what's your problem dude you know you need to practice more maybe but you know he explained to me and then when i came back to australia i I talked to musicians and i said you know friday on my mind you know is is it that complicated and they went oh yeah you ever tried to play friday on my mind Mm -hmm. and then a couple of years ago springsteen came back to australia it was you know on a tour and he opened one of his concerts in sydney with with friday on my mind so clearly he'd 
worked out the courts because he did a pretty good job of it. Uh, but, you know, to me, that moment was so pivotal because we were talking about the Easy Beats, the first record I'd ever bought, and I'm suddenly this guy who's considered, you know, worth flying across the world um, to hang out backstage. And, and, and it was really like this, I'm going, wow. You know, it was, it was a complete... Golly, you know, an incredible journey. It 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 was is a twenty five year old going from listening on your crystal set to to this this and then you know and I'd been to New York before that and you know and I'd you know I'd interviewed Southside Johnny and David Johansson and I'd gone out for for you know to have dinner with Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls and I'd had lunch at a Korean restaurant with Garland Jeffries and then I went from Paris to. To London, and I interviewed John Lydon, and I went to I, I went to Richard Branson's houseboat. I endless endless snigger snigger chuckle chuckle. I went to Mike Oldfield's house, and I got to fondle his tubular bells. Uh, but yeah, and it was like wow. You know, and, uh, well, was let, a- let's move to another person, um, and, and this feel, feels like a bit of a pivotal moment in the book. You 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 got to interview Bob Dylan. Now, not a lot of journalists actually get to have that privilege it it didn't really go to plan no it didn't go to plan um you know i didn't expect to interview dylan i was uh on michael gadinsky had asked if i wanted to go on the tour uh that he was doing in 1986 with tom petty and the heartbreakers basically just to write reviews to phone radio stations and and give them reports you know i went to new zealand first and then uh, and then one night we're watching the Auckland show, and he just said, "He said you're coming, you know, typical Michael. You're driving back with me tonight." And I said, "Why am I driving back with you? You're talking to Dylan." And I went, "Right, that that wasn't a question, right? You know, that was a statement. Yeah, you're talking to Dylan." Uh, so he had, because the ticket sales in Australia apparently were not doing as well as they expected. I mean, I'm sure they were doing fine. Uh, so, so yes, I, I was told that I was interviewing Bob Dylan. So I had no time to prepare. You know, he told me pretty much quarter of an hour, half an hour before Dylan finished playing in Auckland. And then we drove back to the hotel. What year is this? Uh, 1986. 1986. And, uh, and then Dylan, Dylan kept us. Well, you know, Dylan wanted to go to his room. Um, Dylan apparently had a, a routine of calling his kids every night after shows, uh, and wanted some time. And then, you know, so you know, the the, the major mistake um, that I made was consuming a ridiculous amount of cocaine with Michael Gadinsky in his hotel room whilst waiting for Dylan. And so we've got a situation where I am like so high above the planet that I can barely even see where a planet is. And I've got a Bob Dylan who doesn't want to do an interview. So I, at about two o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm some Bob's ready. So, you know, I, I go down and Elliot Roberts, who was Dylan's manager at the time, and Dylan and I sit at a table. And, and Bob, you know, not, he just, he was okay, but he was he was provocative and a little bit, you know. Uh, and and I'm I'm I aside from being incredibly wired, I also made the mistake, which I rectified the next time I talked to him, of you know I came across as the obsessive fan, and 
and he doesn't like obsessive fans. So he was kind of. And he can be a prickly, difficult. Oh, he was. It was not easy, and I, you know, and I was grappling, going, how can I engage him? Where can I go to? And I remember at one point I recalled that he had done an interview with Spin Magazine you know, some months earlier where he said that if he had his time over again, he would have liked to have been a journalist. And and the Spin magazine person had said to him, who would you have most liked to have interviewed? And he said, Hank Williams, the great country singer. So I thought in a desperate attempt to get something going on with Bob, I said, look, you know, I told him about that interview that I'd read it. And I said, look, if Hank Williams was, uh, was sitting here now, what would you want to know? What would you ask Hank Williams? And he pinned me for what was probably only 10 seconds, but felt like forever. He just looked at my dilated eyeballs and he just went, he leaned across the table. He said, I'd want to know where he got his drugs from. <laughs> and, uh, and so forth. So, you know, we, we kept chatting for a bit longer. But look, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great interview. The next time I interviewed him um, was 1992, and that was on the telephone. And in this instance, I couldn't shut him up. You know, he he just he asked me about Brett Whiteley. He talked about poetry that he was reading. Because I didn't ask him train spotting type questions, he started giving me train spotting type information. Um, you know, about working with the band and the Albert Hall concert and other bits and pieces. Um, so that was that was a lot. Um, you know, it was a lot easier. Uh, than the face-to-face encounter in Auckland, but it was it was a it was a it was a lesson. I mean, it didn't stop me taking drugs before I do, did interviews, but it probably stopped me taking as many drugs before I did. <clears throat> it must have been nice to have a second interview. Yeah, and I was wondering if he'd remember because he 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 did read the piece that I wrote uh, because he he took Michael Gadinsky to town for telling me that he went up to his room to call his kids. Now, I put that in my piece simply because I thought that was an admirable thing to do. And I thought, Mm. well, good on you. You know, like Bob Dylan does a show and he goes, he still goes to his room and calls his children. I went, that's pretty, you know, so I didn't think it was a bad thing to put in the piece. Uh, And I commented, as have many other people, about Bob Dylan's handshake of which he does not move his hand. He puts out his hand and you move it up and down for him. Uh, so he had commented to Michael Ganinski about both these things. Uh, so when the second interview six years later was mooted, I went, uh-oh, uh-oh. But uh, if he did recall our engagement um, or encounter, I should say, in New Zealand in uh, six years earlier, he had the good grace not to, not to bring it up. Look, we're, we're out of time, but uh, so we haven't been able to, to talk about a whole lot of things that you've done, including managing the Hoodoo Gurus, Paul Kelly, running a record label. But look, as a final question, you know, you've done just about every job there is in the music industry. After all these years, is music still the center of your life? And, and you know, and does it still hold the, the same power that it once did when you were a boy listening on your crystal radio set? Uh, absolutely, with, without any question. I mean, there is not. Well, there's hardly ever a day goes by when I don't hear something um, that completely thrills me. You know, I still listen to music, you know, 14, 15 hours a day. Uh, I probably buy more new and old music than I've ever bought in my life still. 
uh, just ask my partner. She looks at the vinyl and she says, it keeps growing, Stuart. And I go, it does appear to be growing just a little bit, doesn't it? You know, I rail against people because, you know, I'm, I'm 67 this year. And, uh, you know, so many of the people from my generation, you know, they stopped listening uh, mm. in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Oh, there's no good music. You know, if, if, if anyone wants to wind me up, they will say there's no good music being made since the 80s or 90s or the 60s. And, and I would just go, no, 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 no. You stopped listening. You know, mm. I listen to 2SER, to FBI, to Triple R, to PBS, to WFMU in New York City. I listen to radio all the time. I listen. I read about music. I listen to friends. I look at recommendations on social media. And every single day, you know, if, if I put on a music show on 2SER or FBI or Triple R or something like that, I'm hitting Shazam every two seconds because I've just heard something. I went, who's that? They're incredibly good, and then I'm I'm the guy that's buying their record and and or buying you know their download or you know and and it's it's like you know I really cannot get people who say there's no exciting music anymore or there's no you know everything's been done before. I go no 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 you have stopped listening. This is a great Nick Hornby said a few years ago, he said, if you're a music fan, he said, this is the best time ever to be alive. And he's absolutely right. The amount of exhilarating new music that's coming out is incredible. And also our access to music is like if I want to listen to punk rock made in Indonesia between 1969 and 1973. Before you ask Anthony, yes, I have the triple album <laughs> compilation. I can. If I want to listen to Nigerian funk and soul from 1974 to 1978, yes, I have that too. I can. And so, you know, I guess the only thing that I've realized over the year is over the years is this like it it, it is so awesome. I'm I, I am continually listening to records and artists going, How come I never knew about these people? You know, and, and so, you know, my 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 thrill at new music, new Australian music. There is so much new Australia. I mean, you can tell by the tone of my voice that I just mm. go, "How great is this?" I mean, there's hardly two or three days go by at home without some new record or something coming from a new Australian band who I've heard on a radio station or via a tip from somebody, and I go, "I need that." I don't have time to listen to it, but I need that. And uh, no, it's it's uh, so no my my passion has um, has in no ways uh, diminished, and I I hope it never does. It just know. sounds like the journey goes on. I uh, look, I th I think so. I mean, that's why I, you know I I, I love doing radio, um, and and you know, and I love having that opportunity to go, hey, you know, let's both of us. Let's listen to quality used cars or, hey, if you don't know about Surprise Chef or Karate Boogaloo or whoever I happen to be, you know, enamored with at the time, you and I should have this experience together right now and we're going to do so. Yeah. And that's, that's – I'm very fortunate, Anthony, i got to say, you know, to be able to do the radio I do and write and lead the life that I do. You know, there isn't – you know, it's, I've been incredibly fortunate and – through that good fortune, if I've been able to inspire anybody to listen to particular artists, particular records, or, you know, go and see particular 
live performers, then, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm fortunate and I'm really happy about that. Well, Stuart, look, it's a ripping read, um, and I'd like to thank you for being on Fourth Estate. Anthony, thank you very much. Stuart Coop's new book is called Shake Some Action and is out in August. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TRCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is AU, and you can also find us on threads. My name is Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>